I knew I had a long family history. I knew that I had loved ones who were passing away from breast cancer, and I just needed to know. For me, I once I hear about something, uh, there's no stopping. I would emphasize that genetic counseling is a must. I am so thankful that they did slow me down, and they did ask the hard questions, and they did make me examine what was going on, how was I going to feel, because it, it does impact more than just yourself. Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories. At that moment, I realized it's Thanksgiving Day, and the most thankful moment I have right now is that I am here with my daughter, and I have my children, and this is a moment my mom didn't get to live a long enough time to go through. Today, I'm interviewing Heather Barnard. Heather is an international teacher, an avid traveler, a baker, and a mother of three. She is also a BRCA1 mutation carrier. Hi, Heather. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Hi. Thanks for having me. What does it mean to carry a BRCA mutation, and how did you learn that you carried a BRCA1 mutation? Well, to have a BRCA mutation basically means that my genes aren't producing proteins that could protect them. And so if I were to get cancer, my genes couldn't fight that cancer very well. And then knowing I have the mutation, that puts me at a higher risk of getting breast cancer or ovarian cancer. Um, based on the general population. So I could um, have a higher chance of getting it earlier on. And how did you, um, what led to you being tested and realizing that you actually had that predisposition to developing cancer? I have a long history of breast cancer in my family. My mother had breast cancer. My grandmother had breast cancer. And based on my grandmother's notes, my great-grandmother had breast cancer as well. Um, I pretty much knew that I probably had something going on as soon as I heard about BRCA. It wasn't talked much about, but putting the pieces together, something was happening in my family history, and which led me to want to dig further. And so my grandmother helped me by getting tested first. Okay. And was it something that, did you hear about BRCA in the news, or is it something a doctor or another healthcare provider brought up with you? My grandmother actually brought it up first. Um, my grandmother was a nurse, and so she had a lot of knowledge. She was actually interviewed by the LA Times in 1991 about her own story and my mother's story. Um, and in that uh, article, she actually brought up the fact that she was now watching over my sister and I. Um, and wondering what our futures would look like. And so she kept an eye on the ground and really wanted to see what was going on in the field. And so she told me about the BRCA gene and suggested that I might look into it. Yeah. So when you went in for testing, did you have a copy of her results knowing that she was already positive? Well, when I first went in, I went to um, Huntsman Cancer Institute in Utah, and that was in May 2005. And that initial meeting was strictly just to inquire um, they did some computer-generated analytics based on the information I had of who had breast cancer or ovarian cancer in my family. And based on the fact that we couldn't test my mother because she had already passed, they decided to test my grandmother. And luckily, the Medicare pays for any BRCA testing. So she was able to have that covered, especially since they, she was already a known case of having breast cancer. 
Um, and it wasn't until we got her results, which took about a month later, that I could then set up my own uh, blood draw testing in August of that year. Okay. So they tested her probably for BRCA1 and for BRCA2. And right. then once they had her results, they could test you just for the mutation specifically found in her. Exactly. Okay. And how did you get connected with Huntsman? I, I know you had a good experience there. Did Was that just the closest to your home or were you referred there, self-referred? Um, at the time, I was living in Utah and Huntsman has a very big name when it comes to cancer research and um, it, it was, it's kind of the place to go, the only place to go. And so it was my natural inclination to just go there and trust them. And I only had my um, genetic testing done there as well as my genetic counseling, but everything else um, was well after that. Okay. And what, what year was that? I'm wondering how early this was in BRCA testing. So um, I was tested in August of 2005. And when I found out, it was actually after I found out that Angelina's story came out. And so it was pretty interesting to see someone get tested, have it, and then it became a very well-known um, risk in a normal population. And everyone was talking about it and social yeah. media was going crazy. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, I got tested before and I've had this. And, but at least it was out and people were hearing about it. Yeah, you didn't have the same celebrity platform she had. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how old were you at the time that you had testing done in 2005? I was 28, and I had just had my son, and um, I had my son in 2004, and I got tested in 2005 when I was 28, and the, when I got the blood test back, it was in September, and we found out in September at my counseling session that I was also newly pregnant. So it was a it was a big emotional time and a lot going on when I decided to do all this. Yeah, and you have three children now. Right? I do, I do. So was were you pregnant with your third child at that time or your second child? My second child. Okay. And what did um, what did the genetic counselor tell you that the BRCA one positive status meant for you? Um, it's interesting because I was actually fortunate enough to get my record sent to me. Um, last year, I guess, and they took notes during it. So the counselor actually had all her notes and observations about our session and myself. And um, we spent a lot of time talking about the fact that I had a one-year-old or less than a one-year-old at the time, and I was pregnant as well. And so they had a 50% chance of inheriting the gene from me. And they did a lot of counseling on the fact of, did I really want to go through the testing? Did I really want to know the results and know that I was still having children? Um, it, it was a lot of psychological help in, in making sure that I understood the risk or benefits of getting my results, which I don't think a lot of people take the time to understand. Yeah. Did you consider delaying testing until after you were done having children? For me, I once I hear about something, uh, there's no stopping. I'm the type of person that takes things and moves forward right away. I do a ton of research or I need to know the answer and I can't just sit and wait for things to happen. So for me, it was, I knew I had a long family history. I knew that I had loved ones who were passing away from breast cancer and I just needed to know. And it wasn't that I, I wanted to know necessarily because of my children. It was that I needed to know for my own peace of mind and to know what I could do to stay around longer for them. Yeah. And now you have three children who are how old? They are 10, 12, and 13. Okay, so you're now in a totally different phase of life. Very different. Yeah. 
And a lot, so a lot of women who are found to have a BRCA1 mutation opt for enhanced breast screening with breast MRI rather than a risk-reducing mastectomy and reconstruction. Um, so how did you, I know that you went ahead with a mastectomy, how did you decide that that was the right option for you? And what was the timing like for that, given that you were actually just pregnant with your second of three children when you found out that you were a BRCA1 mutation carrier? Sure. So I'll start with the second half of your question. Um, when I found out that I had the BRCA1 mutation, uh, all the options were brought up to me at that time. And um, it was everything from the mastectomy or to just monitor sit and wait type of attitude. Um, and at the time, because I did have a one-year-old, I was pregnant and couldn't have the surgery while I was pregnant. I knew I was going to nurse. Um, believe it or not, actually, I was done nursing my second child. We found out I was pregnant with my third child. So my timeline just kind of naturally got pushed out without me actually wanting it to be pushed out. Because in my mind, I wanted it all done right away. I would have gone in the next day and just had it done. Mm -hmm. So um, it, by the time I had my third child, which was in um, 2008, um, we, um, I, you know, finished nursing a year later. So we're at 2009 now when I'm actually really able to think about it. And that was the first time I was able to go in for my mammogram to, to be checked. So I had that mammogram. They decided we would do every six months mammogram and MRI at that point. And then in 2010, we actually decided to move overseas. So now I was putting off surgery even further. Um, we moved to the United Arab Emirates. And at the time, there was really no information at all about any sort of mammogram screening and MRI screening for a BRCA mutation, let alone anything about BRCA. Um, they just didn't have the knowledge at the time or the resources to help out. Um, it took quite a lot of effort my first year there while I'm in panic mode because I'm not getting my every six months checkup. Um, mm -hmm. I did eventually find a hospital that um, did work with the US and they were able to get me in for my mammograms and MRIs. So I continued that, but because of insurance issues now in a new country with a new insurance, they weren't yet covering the surgeries and I didn't really feel comfortable at the time because they didn't have practice in it. I didn't want to do reconstructive surgery there. Uh -huh. So we lived there for four years, um, but during that four years, I continued all of my research. I was on many um, Facebook forums and I was getting more involved with Twitter. So I was finding other patients who were having the surgeries. I was learning a lot more about doctors. And so I was keeping records in my mind of where I wanted to go, what I was gonna have done. Um, so by the time we had left Dubai four years later, we moved to Singapore. And in Singapore, it was more advanced. And so they had heard of it. I had good doctors right away. I actually have, um, my primary physician right now is a doctor from UCLA and he is heavy into genomics and oncology. And so it was a great fit and I was glad I was able to find him. Um, so we're now, um, you know, well past eight years, nine years that later after my BRCA um, diagnosis. Yeah, so at this point you're 37, 39? Yeah, yeah. So um, okay. I, was 30, I was 38 when I um, finally had the I can't take anymore. I had that moment, and I don't know if a lot of women go through that moment because they probably have the option of doing it right away, whereas I get, kept being pushed further back. So... Yeah. Uh, when I got to Singapore, I was having the six-month MRIs and mammograms, and my scanxiety is through the rooftops. So scanxiety is where you know you have to go for your six-month scans. You're already worked up when you go. You go for your scan, 
And all you can do is hope for the best. And so until you get the results, all you're thinking is you're a ticking time bomb and cancer is going to hit. Um, and it takes a toll on you and it's a very real thing. And I think it's also something that a lot of patients need to have support through. And I don't think a lot of people understand that part of it. Yeah. Um, so I went in Thanksgiving Day in 2014 to have another routine mammogram. This time they did a mammogram and ultrasound because they felt it was um, a little more thorough. Um, and it just so happened that day my my youngest daughter was having a tonsillectomy and it just happened that way. I wouldn't have planned it to happen that way, but she's in the hospital. I said goodbye to her um, in the hospital. I went and had my mammogram and ultrasound while my husband stayed with her. And I got the result that, well, we need you to, we need you to come back. We need to do a second mammogram. And that was the first time that had happened. So my heart drops and heart palpitations begin. And it was the most severe skin anxiety I've ever had. Went back and they said, well, we definitely see something. We're not sure what it is, but we're getting you into a doctor today. And here, that's not normal. They don't send you that day. You might have the next day or the following day. And so I decided not to tell anyone at that point. And um, I went to um, back to the hospital, uh, waited for my, doc my daughter to wake up from anesthesia. And at that moment, I realized it's Thanksgiving Day. And the most thankful moment I have right now is that I am here with my daughter and I have my children. And this is a moment my mom didn't get to live a long enough time to go through. So all I could think about was thanks at that moment, and I was thankful for that moment on that day. Um, when she was released, my husband took her home. Um, she was sleeping still, so I went and met with the doctor. And it was that moment where you have a, a culture shift and your mind has to shift because here it's not warm fuzzies when you go to the doctor. And I, I'm used to doctors who you know, have that bedside manner of really listening to you and talking you through it, and this was a very matter-of-fact discussion. You have a cyst. We don't know if it's benign or not, and we need to do surgery. And for me, in my mind, I always knew I just wanted a prophylactic mastectomy. I didn't want to go through the what ifs. I didn't want to go through, okay, let's have a lumpectomy and test it and see what happens. Let's watch it for three months or six months and see what happens. That just wasn't even an option for me. Mm -hmm. um, knowing that this was the first irregular scan I had had and knowing that there was a lump, I was done. And I walked out of that office and I said, Firstly, that wasn't the doctor for me. Um, I found my other doctor, Dr. Tucker, who was the UCLA doctor I mentioned. And he was on it from the get-go when I saw him. And we set up immediate plans for me to find um, a surgeon outside of Singapore. And that's what led me back to the U.S. for surgery. Okay, because Dr. Tucker is a primary care physician. Yes. Okay. Okay. And at this point, had you already had a, a prophylactic oophorectomy? Had your ovaries removed? No, that actually came, I had my uh, mastectomy in June and I had the oophorectomy that year in December. So I did them quite close together, but just the oophorectomy after. Okay. And so how did you find, yeah, how did you find your surgeon in the U.S.? So those years in Dubai, I was doing a lot of research and talking to a lot of um, women online and Facebook has amazing groups and amazing um, support networks. And it's amazing the people I have never met in person, but I have known for the past eight years online. Um, there's, I mean, there's a group called Beyond the Pink Moon on Facebook, and it's the greatest group of women that are survivors and providers, and they accept anyone and everyone. Um, they now have a lot of doctors involved, and they've gotten more doctors involved over the year. And so 
it's more of a shared decision-making effort that's happening now. It's not just, I, I only know one doctor and I can only go to this one office and that's the person I'm going to listen to whether I like it or not. Um, so I was yeah. fortunate to take my time and, and really research. And one doctor kept coming up a lot and that was Dr. Crisopolo at PRMA in San Antonio. And I, I reached out to some patients of his and had private conversations with them and they were willing to share photos with me and share their stories of recovery with me. And it just, I could just feel it in my gut that that was the right decision. Um, now, granted, that was flying 12,000 miles and dealing with a surgery overseas, but I knew that that's where I needed to be. And so I ended up choosing him. And it, would you have needed to leave Singapore for that surgery regardless to get to get someone with the level of experience you were looking for? Um, at the time, yes. And still, I would say yes, because even when I when I returned from the surgery and I had my first scan here by another doctor, he, he was surprised at what he had seen. And he asked if he could actually do an ultrasound in his office because he had never seen the type of surgery I had had before. <laughs> so it made me so feel... Not, not- doesn't it doesn't inspire confidence <laughs> right right so it made me feel really good on, on the decision of dr tucker to send me out of singapore at the time and 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 go have that surgery done yeah and so uh, and i i know you still are actually in touch with uh your breast surgeon um why wh- why do you think so highly of him i mean obviously you did your research but um what do you think makes him uh, a good breast surgeon? Mm. Is it his technical skills or other skills or how have you stayed in touch all this time? Well, I, th- I think it started with, we had an online consult when I was still in Singapore and it was my husband and I with him. And just in that consult, you know how you can just connect with someone just by talking to them and it can be that immediate, you feel good and, and you trust that person. And it wasn't that he said all the right things. It was that I would say things and he didn't always have that perfect textbook answer. He was very real and you and he was a dad and he's a husband and he treats you like he would treat his wife, you know? You don't you don't want to give bad advice and and um I think he has the family's heart in mind. And so, you know, my husband felt very comfortable with him and and when we showed up, it was the exact same person that we had met online and it stayed that way all the way through. So my in-person consult with him the couple days before surgery uh, when I was in the the pre-op room and his bedside manner was amazing and I know I'm terrified of hospitals I grew up in hospitals with my mom and my dad and I I just have this overall fear and I had no fear that day I knew I was in the right hands and I was smiling and laughing and taking pictures so I that connection that we formed was amazing and it was during this time I started blogging and I had blogged my entire journey. And through that, I was also on Twitter. And so my circles were connecting with his circles and patients were connecting with me and other doctors were connecting with me. And it just became this community and we still have that community. So we're all very active together on Twitter. Okay, awesome. And so, and we'll include, um, I know on Twitter, you are... Uh, uh, expat travel mom, expat expat travel mom, and we'll include that in the show notes too, along with his uh, Twitter handle. That's awesome that you had that level of positive experience. Oh, he's absolutely <laughs> amazing. It was like the best scenario I could have asked for, and sometimes I feel guilty about it because I know women don't have the perfect experience. 
Well, I mean, most people aren't in the position of having to fly anyway, so they shop right anywhere. Like they're open to absolutely anything. Right, right. Most women also don't do years of research on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you may be an outlier for the level of research you put into it. That's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and so he's, you've written at least, I know you've written two children's books, um, right? Yes. And you, I know that he wrote a forward to one of your books. I don't know if it was a children's book or a different book. Yes. Yeah, so I wrote two children's books and the first one I wrote was called This Much I Know. And I actually started that back in around 2005 when I was going through testing. Um, and it, This Much I Know is about, it's a children's book about children who have mothers going through cancer treatments, although it doesn't ever state cancer. Um, it brings up all the real emotions and questions that children ask because I was putting myself back when I was a child watching my mother. And it was the, the questions of why is mom losing her hair? Why is she constantly going to the doctor? Why are they taking blood? Um, why can't mom play with me as much and she doesn't have as much energy? And so I wrote that book as a cathartic journey for myself, um, dealing with my own mother's cancer journey and her passing away. Um, but I didn't want this mom to pass away either. So it was a really open-ended book um, where the mother just continually keeps saying, this much I know, this much is true. And, and she's telling the child, you know, you'll have memories of me no matter what. And we don't know what's going to happen. Um, and so that was my first one. And then my second one, I wrote as I was actually going through my mastectomy journey. And um, I write, and I write a lot, and that's why I have the blog, and I've always written to get my emotions out. And I felt like there was nothing else on the market for this, nothing about a mother going through a prophylactic mastectomy with implants and having the BRCA gene, and it was needed. And so we documented everything, and this children's book came out of our journey with my own children. Um, and Dr. Krasopolo was kind enough to write the foreword for me because I felt it was important for mothers to know that this wasn't just a whimsy sort of children's book based on my own journey, but I actually do have the right information in there for them and the right information in there for them to share with their children. Yeah. And where, uh, where can people find those books if they're interested in purchasing them? Both books are on Amazon. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, and there's probably links to that from your blog also, Yes, right? there are, yeah. Okay. Uh, so your mother was diagnosed with breast cancer when you were in middle school and passed away when you were only 13, is that right? Right, right. What do you, what do you remember about that time and what do you remember about your mother? Um, it, was, it was a very surreal time. It was um, obviously one of the most difficult things I've ever gone through and it was very quick. So she was diagnosed when she was 40 and she passed away when she was 42. So there wasn't a lot of time to come to terms with it, let alone um, when you're an adolescent. I don't think it's fair to assume that a child knows how to deal with it and for a child to quote unquote grow up. And um, I didn't know how to talk about it and I didn't turn to people. I didn't open up. I didn't show much emotion. I kept everything inside. And so in that sense, a lot of family members kind of turned against me and, and didn't think that I, that I was emotional or feeling, that I had emotions about the situation, I guess you would say. Um, but in fact, I was very really involved in it. I mean, my mom, I remember her in the hospital one night, hooked up to every IV and machine in almost the worst of it. And she was yelling for me to be able to stay the night in the hospital. And the nurses were saying, I couldn't, I couldn't stay alone. I was underage. And 
she was in a, in, in a manic state about it. And eventually they agreed and I stayed. But that was probably the most traumatic night that I can remember. And um, it's, it's a very scary situation to watch your parent go through any illness. And I think I did not deal with it the best way that I could. Um, but what I remember of my mother is that she was the PTA mom. She was the brownie leader, the Girl Scout leader. She held Tupperware parties. She made all of our costumes growing up. Very hands-on, very artsy crafty. And so mm -hmm. I think for a child to see their mother all of a sudden not be able to do any of these things and look the way that she did, I, I, I wouldn't think that many children wouldn't feel the same way as I did, but it was the adults who didn't understand how the child was feeling. Yeah. At what point uh, did you did you know or realize, or did your mom realize that um, her breast cancer was metastatic, metastatic, and she was actually going to pass away from breast cancer? Um, I remember hearing, I remember hearing that she was having the double mastectomy, and I remember that part. I remember there was remission because her hair did start to grow back at one point. We went wig shopping. Um, you know, we did things like that together, but it, there was a turning point, and I feel like this is a part that I have not blocked, but I maybe it was so withdrawn that I don't remember all the details, but the cancer did come back, and it was in the brain and spine, and so I know at that point, uh, someone told me this, this was it. There was no coming back from this, and um, there was a point where she was brought home um, from the hospital, and we knew that she would pass away. Yeah. I can't imagine going through that at 13. I still can't imagine that I went through it. And a lot of people, you know, a lot of people say things to you like, oh, you're so brave and I can't believe you are the way you are. And, you know, everyone has their issue no matter what it is. And everyone deals with it differently. And for me, somehow I came through that and you know, not that it's this topic at all, but I went through my father's death shortly after that from ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And I almost think it's because I went through what I went through and I knew as a child what I was feeling and how upset I was that adults were actually mad at me that I didn't deal with it the right way. It spurred me on to do the best that I could. And so I wanted to get information out there. I wanted to be proactive. I wanted to help mothers and children. And that's been my goal now. Yeah. I don't know that there's a wrong way for a child to deal with the death. Um, I can I can see adults making a child feel that way. <laughs> right, right. Um, but I don't think the information is out there. Yeah, about about how a child would um, grieve mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. deal with a loss of a parent. Right, because you begin grieving before your parent has passed away. You begin grieving as soon as you hear something's wrong. Right. And your oldest child is actually 13 now, yes, right? Yes, yes. So it hits yeah. home. It hits home big time. Um, right. Uh, yeah, so my youngest is basically the age I was when I found out my mother had cancer the first time. My oldest is the age when my mother passed away. So they don't even comprehend the fact that at his age, I no longer had a mother. It, they just can't even understand how that would happen. Right. Yeah, I would think most people couldn't. And what, uh, at this point, what sort of surveillance, if any, do you still have? Or do you not have any surveillance given your surgeries? 
So after my surgery, I was told that it wasn't until three years out that I needed to do any surveillance. You know, I can do self-exam if I want to, but not necessary. The breast tissue is gone. um, So there's not as much of a concern. So um, I just recently had my three-year mark this past June, and I went in, and I think they were overly thorough because I had a mammogram, an MRI, and an ultrasound um, all in that visit. But I just think Mm -hmm. they wanted to make sure that nothing was there. And um, it came out completely clear, which is great to hear. And so now it's every three years. um, So I don't have ski anxiety. um, I don't have to go through the ups and downs every six months. And um, it's it's a relief. It's a big weight off my shoulders. Did you have anxiety or ski anxiety around that uh, three-year checkup or the idea of this next one or not? Because you know that the residual risks are so, so minimal at this point. Well, I actually did, but it was more because of the MRI. The MRI MRI machine and I don't get along at all. Um, when I was going through my six-month checkups, I had one MRI where I had a panic attack, and they had to stop it. And all I could think was, "Oh my gosh, now that all that data is lost." And you know, I I just being in the tunnel, being face down, hearing the noises. It, it's just it gets to my core, and I still I'm not used to it. And so I went through the crying, I went through all the emotions, they all came back when I went for my three-year checkup, but I knew it wasn't because I was scared of having cancer, which that was a difference. Okay, yeah, just the the horror of the breast MRI machine. Yes, yes. Yeah. Dr. Chris Apollo is actually developing an app that you're working on with him too, is that right? Yes, he is, and it's it's very exciting. Um, Like I said, he's heavily involved with patients and patient advocacy, he's on Twitter, Um, he's all about shared decision-making. And like I said before, that just means that you don't have to go to that one doctor and take his word for it. You can go to multiple people and multiple resources, but he wants to make sure that it's research-based, it's valid. He doesn't want people gaining all of their information solely from their neighbor next door. While that's nice and comforting, he wants to make sure that people are getting good information. Um, So he's developing an app, and it's called uh, the Breast Advocate app, and it's it's a free app, and it's for survivors and previvors and even for caregivers. Um, Right now, you know, it takes you through, when you log in, it takes you through a little analytics survey, and it comes up with what, what they think the best options are for you in the situation that you're currently in and what the outcome is that you're looking for. And it has resources. It has Um, You know, a lot of books, a lot of forums and people you can reach out to. Um, A lot of doctors have worked with him on this. But it's a place that I didn't have when I was going through all of this since 2005. It's a place I didn't even really have in 2013. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I was still gathering my own information. I was still having to go out and, and pick out pieces and things from different doctors and different friends and forums and so forth. And so... I think this is going to change the way a lot of people go through their journeys, knowing that they have it in their hand now, and they don't have to second guess the information because it is medically backed up. Yeah, but and uh, people can find that already. It's it's available it's, on iTunes if they type in the Breast Advocate app, or it, not yet. If they go to breastadvocateapp.com, they can sign up for the notification and for the beta testing, and so they could be a part of the beta testing group. Um, to make sure everything is the way people want it. They can put in their feedback and it'll be out very soon. Awesome, good. We'll we'll include that link in the show notes too. 
So you had your oophorectomy done the same year you had your mammogram. You just turned 39. Uh, Having an oophorectomy done plunges a woman into menopause. What was that like for you? And did you take hormone replacement therapy? And how did doctors talk to you about those options? So I have to be honest, my oophorectomy was a lot harder than my mastectomy. Um, on all accounts. It was a lot harder emotionally, physically, uh, everything about it. And even from my pre-op appointments, I think that's when I learned there are a lot of risks involved with an oophorectomy. I mean, heart disease for number one, and the list goes on. You have dementia, you know, all these things just from your oophorectomy because of your hormones. Um, And I was scared of going through menopause. No one wants to go through menopause when you're 39. Um, Mm -hmm. I know you know, having a monthly period isn't exactly great, but I would take it, you know, there's days I'd take it over having to go through menopause. Um, the recovery was fine. I, um, I had a little bit of issues with the belly button incision, um, that I was going to go back to work after two weeks, but ended up going back after three weeks because it wasn't healing as well. The hot flashes started immediately. Um, I actually thought I was having anxiety attacks or panic attacks, and it turned out to be the hot flashes. And it was just because my body was so uncomfortable and I didn't know what was happening in that moment. Um, But we finally realized that there was a pattern and it was not anxiety. It was, in fact, the hot flashes. Um, I tried to go natural. I tried um, some compound formulas and things like that to deal with it. But after a few months of it, I was getting, you know, 10 to 12 a day. And they were were pretty hard. visible sweat everywhere. And I I just couldn't live that way. I'm a teacher. And so that didn't really work well in the classroom. Um, Mm -hmm. So I ended up going on HRT. And so I have estrogen and progesterone. And um, that took them down, I would say, to about six to eight a day, more on the six side. They were um, less intense. And um, that was pretty good. And then um, talking to Dr. Tucker, we decided to try to work my diet as well. And we eliminated all sugar and most of the carbs. And now I probably have two a day and I barely notice them. And it's been, let's see, it's been how many three years. It's been three years. Okay. But still, still having that many a day doesn't, doesn't sound, doesn't sound great. You know, yeah, two a day over the 10 to 12, I'll take it. But, um, I think the other symptoms that, uh, women, don't realize, or even their friends who are thinking, you know, it's not that bad, is it? But, you know, you have things like your skin starts to change, it loses its elasticity, your hair, you know, becomes a little duller and um, your hair, you can have hair fall as well. Um, A lot of women I hear go through mood swings. Luckily, well, my husband might not agree, but I don't think I've gone through mood swings. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I sleep with a fan on. I never used to sleep with a fan on. So my body temperature is definitely warmer overall. And there's a lot of little side effects. But overall, again, I knew I needed to do it. And I'm glad I did it. And now I just have to deal with this side of things. Yeah. And did you shop around for a for a GYN surgeon or a gynecologic oncology, uh, GYN oncologist to do that surgery like you did for uh, your breast surgery? I didn't. But the only reason I didn't was because it wasn't cosmetic. It didn't involve anything cosmetic, really. Mm, um, yeah. You know, and to go back to that, because I don't want it to sound like I looked for Dr. Chrysopoulos simply because of cosmetics, because he'll be the first to tell you that I walked in saying, I don't care what you do. I just want them gone. Um, uh-huh. it, you know, <laughs> he brought up size and I said, 
I don't care. Whatever fits in there, whatever looks good, I just want it over. Um, I haven't mm -hmm. done fat grafting, which a lot of women go and do fat grafting because that's not important to me. I, I don't need perfection. I just wanted to take the weight off my shoulders. Um, right. So in that sense, when I say cosmetic, I, I did look for him as a surgeon because I knew he would do a good job. Um, but with the oophorectomy, it's microscopic. There's three incisions, and I, I wasn't worried about that at all. Um, Dr. Tucker, I trusted the people he was sending me to, and so he actually had someone set up, and um, she did a great job. Great. So now with your children, uh, 10, 12, and 13, mm -hmm. right? Are, are, are they at an age where they have a good understanding of what uh, it means that you have a BRCA mutation and the fact that they each have a 50% chance to have inherited that and a 50% chance not to have inherited it? Um, so when I was having the surgery, we they overheard a conversation I had with my husband that said, I'll be spending two nights in the hospital. And so one of my children said, why are you going to the hospital? And I wasn't expecting it to happen at that moment, but we ended up having the conversation. And, you know, we, we briefly discussed BRCA. I, I said, you know, you know, mommy's mommy has passed away. She had something called breast cancer that made her very sick. Um, and we talked about that doctors are so smart now. They're able to find out what it is inside of mommy that makes you sick. And they can actually help fix that so that I don't get sick like my mom. And, you know, very general mm -hmm. terms at that point in their lives, which was a while ago now. Um, and, and then, you know, we talked about the surgery and they understood the surgery for the most part. And, you know, my, my husband ended up explaining the implant as a gummy bear. And so my youngest at the time was like, oh, <laughs> you're going to have gummy bears inside of you. And so it was, a, it was very, it was, you know, calming for them. It wasn't a scary thing. They actually had fun with it. And they're like, they're still, we make fun of it. And they're like, oh, you know, you're squishy yeah. gummy bears. <laughs> But um, at this point, now that they're older, um, they they know I blog about it. They know I talk to Dr. Krasopolo a lot. They know I'm working on this app with him. They know I've written books about it. And so we're very open about it. And more so with my daughters, I have to say. My son, he not until recently realized that he actually has a 50% chance of getting the gene mutation and that he could develop breast cancer. He didn't know that men could get breast cancer. So that was an important conversation to have with him. Um, it, it, it didn't freak him out in any sense, but you could tell it was like a, a big aha moment for him. Um, uh -huh. And then my daughters, you know, I was, when I did my first bra shopping with my oldest daughter, she said, am I going to have to have your surgery? And I said, well, it's going to be up to you. It depends, you know, what advances we have by then, but most likely you'll choose to have the surgery as well if you have the mutation. And, you know, she said, can I have your doctor because he was so nice? I'm like, absolutely. We'll do whatever we can to make this a good experience for you. But, and, you know, she was yeah. asking those basic questions and now she understands more about her risk of getting it and what this actually means. She understands that it's part of your DNA and she's learning about DNA in school. And so it's a little closer and she gets it and has background knowledge about it in science. So that's really helped. Um, but neither of them are scared about it. Um, both of them said that they do want to find out if they have the mutation, although I said not until 18. That was just my personal choice. Um, mm -hmm. They both want to know if they have the mutation, and they, they both said that they are open to having the surgery, but they're not scared of having the surgery because they understand why they're going to have it. And they saw my experience with it. And so they said, because of me having such a good experience with it, and they see that I'm totally normal now, and you would never know that I had the surgery, um, right. they're okay with it. And so... I think just because I'm such a public person and I'm on Twitter and writing a blog and sharing with anyone and anyone, you know, who walks up to me, um, 
they see that it's okay. And it's just a very open topic in our house and it is what it is. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, their experience is very opposite from yours. Like instead of exactly. losing their mother, they have their mother right there helping them with all of this. And you've really normalized the idea for them that they can, if, they, if they're positive, this is something that they can, can live with and live beyond. Absolutely. That was the most important thing for me through the entire process because, you know, they flew with me to Texas. They were with me at my pre-op appointment and met my doctor. You know, they were there every step of the way. They couldn't escape it. They couldn't go to grandma's house and be away from it for three weeks. Um, Mm -hmm. So they were there. They came and visited me in the hospital the day of surgery um, after I got out. And then they were there the day I came home. And that's a hard day when you come home and you're knocked up on narcotics and you can't do anything. Um, so they saw it all, but I almost Mm -hmm. feel like it was done so well and they were well equipped with information that it, it just helped them. And it, yeah, it, it, it's been a good journey for them. And then, I mean, their association with hospitals now is seeing you go through that, but seeing you come out Mm -hmm. healed on the other side. Very different, (laughs) very different. None of them are scared to go to a hospital. Um, they've been completely okay with it. When I had my oophorectomy, they were okay with it. Um, you know, my daughter had her tonsillectomy. She was okay with it. So they're all much different than I was. And I'm very thankful for that. You have a really active blog that you've mentioned. You've written several children's books. You're working on this app, just being in this world of BRCA risks. Um, what do you see as, do you see improvement in general awareness just since you initially learned about this and were diagnosed? Oh, absolutely. And 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 what do you see like what do you see as the improvements and then also what do you see as still really common misconceptions out there that you run into okay yeah um improvements i can't help but think there's improvements um you know like i said when in 2005 when i was initially finding out i was brca positive there there was no information out there definitely no social media there was nothing i could go on to to find anything out any information I did find out, it was medical journals and it was doctor speak and that didn't help me. So at that point in time, the only person I could go to was my genetic counselor. Thank goodness Huntsman had an amazing team. And, you know, I actually reached back out to them and the oncologist there and told them I had gone through my surgeries and just wanted to check in with them and let them know. And they were so warm and receptive and, you know, I'm glad I did that, but there was just nobody else I could go to. And so you fast forward, um, I would say 2011-12 is when I really began discovering a couple forums on Facebook. Um, I know Beyond the Pink Moon, I mentioned, that was one, my initial one I went to. Um, And there were a lot of people on there talking and, you know, resources started being gathered. But the women were talking about their doctors versus now the doctors are on the forum as well, which is really cool. Um, Mm. And so I think that's the biggest change I see now, the biggest shift in the mentality of these doctors, they realize that they realize how personal the journey is. They realize how it can be a family journey. They realize that there's emotions attached to it, and it it just can't be this. Um, it can't be looked at as just a medical operation, and you're done. And to know that I can always go back to my surgeon and talk to him, which any of his patients are open and welcome to do. Um, to know that that's there is just amazing, and I can't think that my grandmother or mother really had that connection with their doctors. Yeah. 
So more of a shift from doctors saying this is what you need to do and more of a conversation, like you said, collaborative decision-making between the physicians yes. and, the, and the patients. Yes, very patient-centered versus doctor-centered. Mm, yeah. Uh, what do you, at, at this point, for someone someone who might be listening who has a family history of breast cancer, who's thought about seeking out genetic counseling or possible testing, uh, but hasn't really taken that step yet or hesitates to do that, what, what would you want them to know? I think the most important thing, one of my biggest concerns right now is the mail-in genetic testing. Um, mm. For me, the counseling is so huge. And for, especially for someone like me, who's, you know, type A, go get it done, not, you know, don't pass, you know, don't stop, pass, go, keep going. And, you know, <laughs> I, I am so thankful that they did slow me down and they did ask the hard questions and they did make me examine what was going on. How was I going to feel? Because it, it, it does impact more than just yourself. It ultimately comes down to your decision, but it does impact more people around you. And I would emphasize that genetic counseling is a must. And I would even emphasize that you need to do the genetic counseling before you do the test. So if you're doing the mail-in test, I would still say go to a genetic counselor first. Um, and when you get the results, you have to have them looked at. You have to have them analyzed. You can't sit there and, and take this coded doctor-speak information and make your own decisions. Um, genetic counselors are there for a reason. And um, I think it's invaluable in the whole journey. Um, and so that would be my first piece of advice. And my second piece of advice is don't think that you have to settle on the one doctor in your town and his decision. Um, research all your options. You don't have to do what I did. You don't have to have a direct to implant type of surgery. You could do a deep flap surgery, which uses your own tissue. You could um, do expander surgery and then an implant. and Or you could have no uh, reconstruction at all and go flat. And I just think everyone needs to take their time and really consider those options and the risks involved with each and reach out to women because women are incredible in this community and they will share pictures and they will share their journey. And I think the pictures really helped wrap my mind around everything. Um, and make sure that you get along with your doctor and make sure that you can ask all the questions you want to ask. Don't, don't let someone tell you you're asking too many questions. Don't let someone mm -hmm. tell you that, oh, that's not important. Because if you're asking the question, it's important to you. So make sure you have that good connection with your doctor. Yeah, it's great advice. Besides the app that you're working on with Dr. Crisopolo, are you working on any other projects or planning any other books, children's books or other books? Um, well, my blog, I get a lot of people writing into me with questions and comments and so forth. And so on a personal note, I've started writing my own memoir, taking the blog information plus information I don't have in the blog about being a child and going through that with my mom and so forth. So I've been writing a book for myself, whether or not I put it out, I'm not sure yet. Um, mm -hmm. But I, you know, part of me thinks that that whole episode of me being a child and going through that is a really important part of a journey, especially for women like us who are BRCA positive and grew up with mothers that went through it to acknowledge the pain that goes with that. So we'll see. I, I've started writing it. We'll see if I actually decide to put that one out as well. 
If you'd like to share your story, send an email to podcast at graygenetics.com. If you'd prefer to share a written version of your story, we're creating a dedicated place on our website for this too. Reach out to us at the same address, podcast at graygenetics.com. Gray Genetics provides genetic counseling services to patients throughout the U.S. and the world using secure, HIPAA-compliant video conferencing. To book an appointment, visit graygenetics.com. If you enjoy listening to patient stories, please take two seconds to rate us on iTunes and consider taking 30 more seconds to leave us a review on iTunes. Those ratings and reviews really do help us to reach more people and to share your stories with a broader audience. You can also easily share any of our episodes through social media. You can find Gray Genetics on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.